Hello and welcome to this inaugural Junior League of Cincinnati podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Junior League Archives Committee. My name is Lisa Dye, and I hope all of you enjoyed this chat I had with the incredible and inspiring Darlene Kamine. If you have any suggestions on which member you think we should talk to next for the podcast, please email us at archives at jlcincinnati.org. So I'm here with Darlene Kamine. Darlene, thank you so much for joining me today. And we just have so much history that we need to cover. So I am fascinated. So can you please tell me more about these Junior League pilots? So according to the archives of the history that we reviewed oh, probably 10 years ago, there were a series of articles that we wrote in Perspectives. And one of the amazing um, projects that the Junior League, it wasn't really actually a project, it was just the work of the League during World War II. Um, when the men went off to war, there were a lot of um, needs that were um, left unmet. And so, among others, in General Hospital, the Junior League volunteers were staffing um, a lot of the admissions and um, some of the other uh, you know, non-medical mm. uh, offices at the hospital, and then also flying um, uh, helicopter medical missions uh, because there wasn't anybody to do that. And, and um, at that time, people were trained. I don't know exactly how that happened, but it was, it was the work of the Junior League. Um, so it's a, you know, very powerful history, things that, that aren't visible, but, um, yeah, so that was just a a good example of the strength that we, we could do anything always. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about the beginning of of ProKids? Sure. So just, you know, what, what was the need that you saw that you felt need to, had to be met? Well, sure. So at the time, um... Uh, this is now late 70s. Um, I was actually a brand new attorney working in the legal aid public defender division um, with the iconic B. Larson as our boss and mm-hmm. um, a wonderful time in the history of um, uh, the development of uh, legal aid. And um, I got a call one day from the Bar Association and uh, they basically were responding to a terrible, terrible case that sort of seized the city, it was on the front pages um, for quite a while, involving um, a father who had stuffed a green pepper down his child's throat because the child had eaten meat um, in violation of their religion. And the kid died. And, um, and these were sort of cyclical as it happens, you know, that there would be a terrible child abuse case which would really grip everyone and people would say there's something we should do about it and then it sort of passed just like the school shootings um, are mm-hmm. now. And so, um, so they said, you know, we as the Bar Association feel like we should do something about this. We don't know what, but there is the beginning of um, some representation of children mm-hmm. in abuse cases in the juvenile court because parents have representation the welfare department has representation but the child's voice is not independently represented and heard and moreover there's really no tracking of children through the foster care system which had lots and lots of its own issues it was you know sort of as the old um, line is from Moliere the the cure was was worse than the illness in many cases and so 
frankly, it wasn't anything I had never studied that in law school. I was majoring basically in law school, if you can uh, major, uh, in trusts and estates. Um, and, so that's a pretty big leap. Yeah, oh yeah, I was considering a you know career in politics. I had absolutely no, nothing about juveniles was on my, but I was so excited that the Bar Association, you know, sort of called me and knew that I existed, and I said, sure, I'll, and I was one of the only women lawyers, young women lawyers at the time, so of course, who else were they going to call about something having to do with child abuse? Um, and so, um, anyway, I wound up shortly thereafter going to um, the American Bar Association for a meeting um, about this sort of fledgling concept of guardians ad litem, so attorneys representing children in child abuse cases in court so that their voice would be heard and they wouldn't be lost in the system. Um, there were very few of them in the United States at the time. There was one in Cleveland and one in Philadelphia. You could count them on less than one hand. And um, so before then, so before, I mean. This is before pro kids. So, bef so before, but so before kids, like, so when children were in court, so what was, what was the process? Then? Oh, well, if you've ever seen night court where they wheel <laughs> I have in a, vague memory. <laughs> a basket uh -huh. of just hundreds of cases mm -hmm. and there's really nobody else in the courtroom, mm -hmm. so there would be a judge and the attorney representing the welfare department and maybe the parents would be there, maybe they wouldn't, maybe they'd be mm -hmm. represented by counsel, maybe they wouldn't. Um, there was a guardian ad litem that was required by law, um, and that was uh, the, a judge's friend, volunteer, mm -hmm. that sat in the jury box, and mm -hmm. they just processed these cases without any review, without any independent knowledge, without any tracking, without anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so, really, at the time, we ultimately found that there were about 5,000 cases. Nobody was even tracking how many. Um, and they'd come once a year because that was what was required by the court as a review, but the review was completely perfunctory. And so the result is, is that no one knew if the kids were in school. They didn't know if they were supposed to be adopted. Did they ever get adopted? How long were they remaining in foster care? How many times were they moved that nobody knew? Um, should they have ever been placed in care to begin with? Did the families get the kind of supports that they needed in order to keep the family together? Um, kids that were sent off to various institutional settings that nobody had any idea what the quality was or what kind of care. It was really, it was like a Dickens novel. It's and that's, that was the state of affairs across the country. And unfortunately, in many cases still exists. Um, so the idea was, you know, the, the, the court, the juvenile court is charged with loco parentis, with being the parent in place of the parent when the parent can't provide the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And that has to be taken really seriously. And we really need to be able to, to provide for the child as a court exactly what you would do if you were a good parent. You know, mm -hmm. that's why we took them away from a parent who theoretically wasn't so good. Yeah. Um, we found that in many, many, many cases, kids weren't being sent to school, um, you know, because the transportation never got set up. Um, you know, 14 placements was about average for kids to just move from place to place to place. We found kids ultimately who were supposed to have been adopted, never got adopted, and were living back with the families that they were permanently removed from. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Um, so, um, so we, 
I wound up basically working as the chairman of the Child Abuse Committee of the Bar Association, which was a committee of one person. Which was <laughs> you. Nobody else <laughs> wanted to do it. <laughs> Didn't have as much appeal as trusts and estates and corporate law and, you know, securities. I'm sure it was staffed by 20 or something, right? Oh, and those, those sections are still really yeah. large. And ultimately, I wound up having a law student who, um, who worked with me. And, um, and we set up, I mean, this came after about a year or more of trying to figure out what was actually going on in these, in the, in the courts and how did the system work and, you know, so forth and so on. And, and in private practice, I actually wound up taking a couple of cases, um, that gave me some insight. I had a case, an adoption case. Um, in which a white couple had an African-American child placed with them more or less at birth and oh I mean they just adored this child and he was thriving and then suddenly at the age of five the policies changed and the Department of Human Services wanted to remove the child because they felt like a black child needed to be with a black family and they were going to put this kid on a plane to Las Vegas because there were a lot of families in Las Vegas that were interested in adopting who were African-American. Which conceptually, yes, of course you want that, to, but it was too late. That ship had After sailed. After five years. And the kid really, really, really didn't want to go and was thriving and, you know, so forth and so on. The family adored him anyway. So I had a chance to sort of see the inner workings of, of how a case worked from the, from the inside with some of the cases that I had. Anyway, the bottom line is um, I set up through the, you know, under the kind of auspices of the Bar Association and with, in cooperation with the court, which frankly we also had to convince because the court was kind of comfortable doing what they were doing. So I was just a big troublemaker on every, every score. Um, but we set up, and the Bar Association was a very different animal at that time too. It was you know, three wonderful women and mostly volunteers. It was almost like the Junior League. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually the Bar is how I got to the Junior League to begin with, but that's a different story for a different time. So anyway, um, I set up a training for a t volunteer attorneys that wanted to be guardians ad litem. And um, they, were, they were paid $50 a case. Um, from some grant that we got and I was running a private practice and just doing this as my extracurricular activity um, and We did this training anybody that took a case got free um, continuing legal education credits, which are required to keep our license and Pretty soon the court went from being very skeptical to saying more 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 we need more and I couldn't manage an entire training and assignment and follow-up just as a volunteer gig in addition uh -huh. to being in private practice. So I started to write grants. And I wrote, uh, and at this time, I was, uh, let's see, started this probably when I was 26. Um, so this was all, do you know, kind of in my very early career. Had you ever uh, written a grant before, or was this um, a new experience for you? I don't even remember, actually. But, you know, I mean, writing a grant is just mm -hmm. telling the story. And, right. You know, well, I wasn't very successful at it, mm -hmm. but the reason I, that I got each and every time was lawyers are rich, you should take care of yourselves. Why are we going to give you a grant? Because, you know, you're mm -hmm. lawyers. So it was a pretty... Um, 
you know, frustrating kind of situation. And that went on for probably a year or two, um, you know, over and over and over again, trying to pursue some funding for this. And really, some places we were kicked out of, like, we went for, you know, to apply to meet with, and people were very offended that we were second-guessing the welfare department because the welfare department was clearly there for children's best interests. So who, who did we think we were? So it was very controversial. In addition mm -hmm. to everything else, I was also very vilified because I, how dare I? And so... Question the reasoning yes, of such a blameless institution. That's, right. that's exactly right. And system. That was so wonderful. You're like the Pope there. Uh -huh. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, uh, so a friend of mine at the Bar Association, uh, who was one of the three people in charge, was a member of the Junior League. And she said, apply for funding to the Junior League. Children is something that they're very interested in. Child abuse happens to be one of their focus areas. And I never heard of the Junior League before. I didn't have any idea what it was. And uh, she said, but you're going to have to modify it to include volunteers can't just be about attorneys. There have to also be volunteers involved. And there has to be training because the Junior League really believes in good, solid, deep training. Um, and, the, and the volunteer opportunities have to be meaningful and well-structured. You know, mm -hmm. she came, and she said, and it also has to have a catchy name. So I was calling it the Institute for Child Advocacy or something of that, mm -hmm. something dry and you know, very legally sounding. And she mm -hmm. said, no, no, no. It has to be something catchy. Like, she said, like the gym shoes pro kids. How about pro kids? And I said, oh, that sounds fine. <laughs> and so, um, so I wrote this grant and, you know, followed all the whatever. And Linda Smith, who I'm, I'm sure you've heard of, of is iconic Linda Smith, wonderful Linda Smith, was on the committee. And she recalls, I don't recall it, but she recalls me running in with this application like minutes before the deadline at our old office at the Regency. And the reason that it was so late is because I wrote it, but I had to have the support of the court and the Bar Association because, you know, it was kind of coming from, from all of us. And, um, and judge by phone, and remember, at that time it was typewriters mm -hmm. and, and white out or whatever. <laughs> and so, or you just started all over again, right. pulled the sheet out and started all over. And he just kept having these edits. Mm -hmm. So I had to keep editing it and starting mm -hmm. over, and I was working into the night on this typewriter with the whiteout, and, and finally I said, I, got, I have to go. I have to get this down there. So we made it through the first round, um, and then applied, or then they, they brought it down to six applications, and we had to present before the whole membership. And these were whole night kind of, events mm -hmm. um, you know started at six or seven in the evening and went to 11 or 12 o'clock at night Wow um, and this one was particularly contentious and this and the six of us that were um, on the sort of stage for that presentation one was kids helping kids which was a huge um, and wonderful and important um, drug treatment program and all of the the projects were very weighty and very needy and here we are you know this kind of startup idea um, and um, it happened um, that I got to hear some of the conversation you know the questions and so forth and so on because nobody told me I had to go 
mm -hmm. the Junior League can't take back its vote or its money now. It's too late. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I was sitting all the way in the back. I, eventually, I, I, I left, but um, people were screaming at each other. And oh because, again, like, how dare we question the welfare department? And one of the people that was a member and a very iconic member was a supervisor at the welfare department. And she threatened to quit the league if we voted in that project, if they voted in this project. And she did. She ultimately did oh, quit wow. the league. Yeah. So it sounds like it's all like, oh, uh -huh. oh, no, 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 no. It was not like that. It was hard. That's so surprising to me yep. that it was so contentious. No, very contentious. I mean, it was, there was a whole, oh, gosh, Howard Ain on Channel 12 did a whole expose on the welfare department as, as, as I was working on this prior to the Junior League, um, a three-day expose about you know how terrible things were and they caught the, the director on camera and he said I have nothing to say to you Howard Ain you know and walked away it was very very um, controversial mm -hmm. um, but anyway um, it got voted in um, and it was the first year we got $75,000 and you know subsequently it was it, it, that continued for several years and then we added new elements to be able to kind of keep our our hands and and one of the requirements was that we really because it was so much an incubated project everything was done by the league mm -hmm. and again Linda Smith was the first president of the board and Linda picked out the office space and went shopping for the furniture and she and the volunteers carried the furniture in to set up the first office and hired the first staff um, I was on the board um, but I was, by that time, I was on the bench. I was in, in juvenile court. So, um, I obviously, I couldn't work there. Um, but I was on the, on the early board. That was uh, one-third junior league, one-third um, uh, bar association, and one-third representatives from the court. Um, but the junior league set up the entire training because the guts of the program are volunteers who are serving as, as guardians ad litem for the, for the uh, children under the supervision of the staff attorneys. Um, and they set up everything. The first class was probably 25 people, um, and they just were continued to be very best, all junior league people. And every bit of the training, every bit of the supervision, the structure, the st everything was all done by that league committee. So that's it, and the rest is history. <laughs> so did you get a chance to sort of like case-wise, mm -hmm. personally mm -hmm. witness the impact. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Are there any, you know, stories of, you know, of children that you would mind uh, that were personally impacted by this? Well, that I'll say you would mind sharing. Sure. I mean, first of all, I'll say that within the first year, we brought the. Um, now, it wasn't entirely just pro kids, but it was certainly a, a new, fresh air mm -hmm. brought in to the system and the philosophy that, that, you know, came from the support of this approach. We brought the number of kids in foster care from 5,000 down to 900. It's incredible. And not one child was abused or mistreated. There, was, there wasn't a, a single mistake, if you will, in mm -hmm. that. So just that alone. We instituted, we became the national model court for um, dependency, neglect, and abuse. And so we instituted regular reviews, and those reviews were, you know, sometimes it was every week um, because the, there was no accountability for even 
couldn't find where the children were, didn't know what class they were in, didn't know what grade they were in. Um, and so really just a complete cleanup mm -hmm. of that, of kids being able to be stabilized and back in their homes or well-placed in an adoptive home or a stable long-term foster home, back in school, we started to, um, you know, really be able to get deep into the care of children, the kind of, do they need tutoring? Do they need dance lessons? You know, mm -hmm. like how can we make sure that they are having the kind of life that we would want for our children? And that was very, very, very much um, the league. Um, I, I can tell you as a volunteer myself, I'll give you a, an example of a case that I, I was involved with, obviously, that I remember. And this is going to sound crazy. And mm -hmm. I know it's going to sound crazy. I don't. But um, we had a family. The father was um, a very skillful butcher for the meat companies, which unfortunately don't exist in the way they did then. My dad mm -hmm. used to work for Cons, so I had a mm -hmm. very big affinity for this. But Cons and Hunt and Bear, anyway, this guy was an itinerant butcher for these meat companies. And why was he itinerant? Um, he and his wife and I think six children lived in a car. Oh my God. And they chose to live in a car. And he would go to work. He made pretty decent money. The mom did not send the kids to school. She was, we would call it now homeschooling, but it was, that was not a very, you know, sort of accepted thing. And she would teach the kids. She took them to the library. She took them to the zoo. She took them to the museums. They were well-behaved, well-educated, very loving, but they lived in a car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so as soon as the authorities would catch up with them, they'd get in the car and move to the next place. I don't know why they lived in a car. I really mm -hmm. just can't give you that explanation. If I knew, I don't remember. But um, anyway, the authorities caught up with them here, and I became involved at the point in time when they were in foster care. Um, and um, they were all split up, and they were all running back to the car. They couldn't. So here you had little kids that were completely, they didn't want to live apart from their family. They were miserable. They weren't doing well. And they were unsafe because they were running. Um, and, and we had a, I was appointed as a guardian ad litem. I met with every kid. And it was heartbreaking because here was a really, and the kids were so smart and well-adjusted, and they could read at a, you know, above grade level, and they knew things that average kids don't know. They, mm -hmm. Again, an early version of homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And I worked very closely with the Department of Human Services with a caseworker, and we were able to convince the court to return the children to their family, which to some might sound like a crazy thing, but they were happy and healthy and well taken care of. There wasn't a thing wrong with them, except they were living an unconventional life. Um, they would have all wound up in foster care had it not been, and you know, who knows where. Um, but I think the other, I mean, there, there are, um, you know, many, many, many stories that, that we wound up being able to um, make sure that, that families got the care and the treatment that they needed um, and um, really stabilize it. You know, we had a case in which um, the, the I mean, again, these aren't the, the worst of the worst, but they're just some that, that were examples of common sense. That's what it was. It was bringing mm -hmm. common sense. Um, a family that was separated for a while, the parents had some issues. We finally got the parents and the kids back together again, ready to, to be reunited. 
and the welfare department would not return the kids until all the children had a mattress. But the family did not have um, a car, and they didn't have access to any kind of a car. They had a voucher for the mattresses, but the place that the voucher worked doesn't, didn't deliver. So we were going to leave the kids in foster care because, and I said, you know, and, and again, the pro-kids advocate gave me all the, the parents are stable, they're, they're, they're good, the visitations have gone well, the kids are dying to go back, everything is good. But we're not returning the kids because they won't deliver the mattresses. And I said, how are they supposed to return the kids, how are they supposed to get the mattresses on the bus? Are they supposed to carry the mattresses on the bus? And so pro-kids intervened and they found a way uh, to be able to get the mattresses delivered and they got the mattresses delivered and the kids went home. It seems insignificant, but honestly there are so many cases in which families are separated and kids are made miserable because somebody is just not using common sense. They're just being bureaucratic and lazy or mean-spirited or whatever, I don't know. But there were many situations, we had many pro-kids cases in which the kids were put out of school because they didn't have any immunization. And, and it was just an impasse. Like, the caseworker didn't take the kid for the immunization. They didn't have the immunization. The foster parent didn't take the kid for So they just didn't go to school. That's, inc that's incredible. And so we had pro-kids people who found a doctor who would see them, got them immunized, got them to school, got them the tutoring, got them, you know, I mean, so a lot of it, it's not the stuff you see on TV. 90% of what is in abuse, neglect, and dependency mm -hmm. is really just the circumstances of life that have gotten out of control. Mm -hmm. And somebody decided that that was the one because, in many cases, because they were poor, they must not be good parents. And so, you know, what we, so anyway, it, that, the, the, the biggest thing I can say without, there's, it's not a sensational story. The story is making sure that kids got what they needed. Kid, child by child, family by family, they got the support, they got the intervention, they had everything they needed to be able to provide for their children in a way that we would want for our own child. And mm -hmm. there isn't the ability for a giant bureaucracy to do that. They have way too many cases. And so even those that have the best heart and the best intention and all the energy in the world can't do that for 30 or 50 or 60 or 100 cases. They just can't, plus all the paperwork. And mm -hmm. so ProKids made it possible for children. We had a child on our docket who um, had never celebrated a birthday because she was always in, in, the, in a new home and many times she was in the home of a Jehovah's Witness where they didn't celebrate birthdays anyway. At the age of 18, the pro-kids advocate came to me and said, this child has never had a birthday. Would you be willing to have a birthday party for her in the courtroom and bring her in and celebrate her 18th? And we decorated the courtroom, and she brought in a cake, and we brought all, and we had a giant birthday party in our courtroom. That's not the sensational story that you see on, you know, NCIS or whatever those are, it is. But those are the things that kids it remember forever. It makes the difference. It makes yeah. the entire so you take a picture of the whole child. You don't just glance at it. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, so the, the, the next step of what happened in the evolution of pro-kids was we um, have responsibility, juvenile court has responsibility for children 
up through the time if they're uh, if permanent rights parental rights are terminated, then the probate court um, does adoptions. So mm -hmm. the juvenile court will terminate parental rights, freeing the child for adoption. But until the child is adopted, they're in this purgatory. They're in, in mm -hmm. they were. And that's where we then, because of the work of ProKids, because of the eyeballs on the case, because of all of the advocacy that they did child by child, here you have a situation in which the child is ready to be adopted, and then nobody knows what happened. We, don't, we never knew, did they get adopted? What happened? Mm -hmm. And so ProKids um, pushed the envelope and got um, special volunteer counsel from a fancy big law firm to you know, make sure that we had all the, the clout that we needed, but it was really pro-kids that was doing all the work, and, um, and started to push the envelope for our jurisdiction in um, that time after they were permanently. So making sure that there was advocacy and somebody watching over the child until they got adopted, because the fact of the matter is a lot of them never did get adopted, especially if they were freed for adoption at 12 or 14 or 15 or 16, mm -hmm. do you know, and then there they're sitting and they're just, nobody's watching them. There's no accountability. There's no court review by anybody. And pro kids said, nope, 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 that doesn't work. We've worked so long to bring this child, you know, along and give them an opportunity for a safe and, and good and stable life. We're sticking with them until we know that they can be, that they are adopted or the advocacy that they need to make sure that they're getting everything that they need. Um, and that uh, went up to the Court of Appeals because the statute wasn't clear. Mm -hmm. And ProKids fought it and won. And again, the rest is history. That's, so ProKids is involved all the way through to the point of probate court adoption. And they do all the advocacy to be sure that in that period of time, they are also involved in the matching of children. They are involved in making sure that the child has all the special services that they need and all the supports that they need to be able to be successful. So in a nutshell, they transformed the practice in juvenile court. They transformed the practice in the state of Ohio in the area of dependency, neglect, and abuse, and obviously have changed the lives of tens of thousands. That's an understatement. Since 1981, you know, I can't even predict uh, because also, you know, when you have, when you have a, a good, stable child grow up to an adult, mm -hmm. it's likely that the generations to follow are going to be in better shape. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so that's, that's the story. <laughs> and what an amazing story it is. I've, um, it's, yeah, it's an incredibly emotionally impactful. I mean the. Thank you so much for sharing it. Oh sure. I think I think um, a lot of people in the league don't quite understand, you know, the background of pro kids. So I think this is really this is really helpful for understanding sure. that. And people, you know, aren't you know intimately familiar with the court system, and they don't don't really understand what's going on. So to have that kind of background is invaluable. So you need the court needs. I mean, everything is based on evidence, and without mm -hmm. the evidence, you can't make an informed good decision and mm -hmm. pro kids was the only entity that um, really was neutral they were really you know there to be able to not only pr 
provide the voice of the child and what's in the best interest of the child, but to actually do what needed to get done. Um, and I will say, just as an addendum, so how did this change my life? Um, so first of all, I wound up on the bench. <laughs> um, not my intent, um, but um, after the experience that I had in forming Pro Kids and working with Judge Grossman, um, he offered me a position, and uh, that also was very controversial because the court was all Republican, and I had been an assistant attorney general, so I was not only a Democrat, but I was a, a public Democrat. <laughs> Um, Heaven and, forbid. <laughs> oh yeah, and it was very controversial. And I had a baby um, at the time, and I said, I, I can only work three days a week, and there had never been a part-time. So I was a part-time employee and a Democrat. Oh my God. So, um, so he said, I don't care. I want the best for the kids and for this court, and, um, and he wound up hiring me. It was quite a stink. Um, and the other judge that was in the court put on an entry that I didn't work for him because it was against, you know, and, oh, people would, like, yell things out at me from the courthouse because I was the one, no, I mean, at the time, they were deducting from our checks dues to the Republican Party. It was a very different time. So, anyway, so I was on the bench for all that time, but I became very, very mm. strident, I guess, about... Um, our responsibility for the education of children because while you can say they came, they got a raw deal based on whatever the circumstances were of their life, but the only hope, the only way out was to provide the kind of education and the kind of life experiences. Do you know my child all the way through school was involved in theater and that, you know, she wound up graduating valedictorian of her class at, at, you know, in high school but frankly, I always wondered if she would have ever gone to school if she didn't have drama at the end of the day, because the math isn't as exciting as being in a play. True. <laughs> and that's how it is for all kids. They're going because of the sports, or they're going because of whatever mm -hmm. that situation might be. And here were my kids in the court who had nothing. They had therapy. And, you know, therapists would say, well, they're depressed. And, well, if they weren't depressed, then I would be worried about them, because their life is sucks. I mean, it's really, it's, it's not a very good situation for them. We need to give them hope. We need to give them an eye towards the future. And I had a um, teacher on my doc uh, that came in to testify about this kid. The child had been retained in kindergarten three times. And I said, well, did you do testing to see what was the problem? And she said, no. And I said to her, exactly like this, I said, well, what would you do if this were your child? In pretty much that tone. And she looked at me so offended as if I had come across the bench and slapped her in the face. The thought that this could be her child, do you know, because how could this foster child be her child? It was such a disgusting sort of concept to her, but that's exactly how she was treating this child. Three years in kindergarten and it didn't occur to them that there needed to be an intervention on behalf of this child? Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. But, oh, I had a principal who testified in my courtroom that... Um, the children in his school were dregs because if their parents really cared about them, they wouldn't send them to his school. <laughs> and so it was completely because the focus was always on get them placed, get them placed, get them placed, get them therapy. But they're not going to make, as I used to always say, they're not going to make a living on therapy. Therapy is a tool, 
But the basic responsibility that we have as, as parents is to make sure that they have a good education, that they have joy, that they have friends, that they find their strength by being involved in various things. Come mm -hmm. on, folks. And so, oh my gosh, it was a 17-year battle, you know, and I was ordering educational evaluations and, you know, all these sorts of things to be able to be sure that kids were in the right place. We, I issued so many contempt of court citations against Cincinnati Public because they couldn't even give us the records to tell us what school the kid was in or what grade they were in or what their transcripts were or what any of it. So <laughs> I finally... Um, Judge Grossman left the court, and it was uh, 1999, and I decided, my daughter was graduating from high school, and I decided that I was going to go back to what my original um, thought had been. Uh, right about the time that I was starting Pro Kids, I really had originally thought that the what I wanted to do was start a youth law center. So not mm -hmm. just about dependency, neglect, and abuse, but all issues that children might have that they could initiate even on their own. Um, and um, I, so I thought, okay, this is time. You know, Judge Grossman is leaving. My daughter's graduating. I'm graduating too. Moving on. And at the time I left, the woman who was the head of the Children's Defense Fund, Eileen Cooper Reed, mm -hmm. who I knew because of the league, because of our experience as the league in starting the Children's Defense Fund, came to me and said, You've been complaining about Cincinnati Public Schools for all the years that you've been on the bench. It's now time to do something about it. And I said, just close it all up, give everybody a check for their portion, <laughs> and let them go find someplace else to go. When I was in the court, I was writing orders to place the child back with their parents in some other school district than Cincinnati Public, based on the experience that I had for 17 years. I don't think they, they probably didn't like that, did they? <laughs> and who was going to care? Because yeah. they didn't know. It was so terrible. Yeah. And, um, and at the end of the day, she said, you know, we have an opportunity here. We have a new superintendent. Jack Gilligan, former governor of the state of Ohio, is right. on the school board. And we have a mandate from the Supreme Court of Ohio to rebuild all of the school buildings in Cincinnati Public Schools. Uh, the whole state got the mandate, but Cincinnati was at the top of the list because the condition of the physical facilities was so bad that it was unconstitutional because it violated the guarantee for an adequate public education, even the buildings. And um, she said that you know, CPS would like to work with Children's Defense Fund to completely reinvent public education. And I said, it can't be done. It just can't be done. She came to my house and wouldn't leave. She came in the morning and she stayed. It was four o'clock before I said, okay, finally, I will look into it. Go home. <laughs> and, That's so tenacious. Uh, she was very tenacious. And anyway, we started to look around at these things called community schools or community learning centers, where all of these partnerships that create the conditions that are necessary for learning, all the things that I was talking about, but everything from healthcare that's right there, so you don't pick a foster child up and carry them across the city and further stigmatize them by and, and they miss school and so forth, but also after school and you know community open to the community and gardens and you name it, an orchestra, just making life wonderful um, using the school building with a lot of different partnerships. And I did that for three months, just looking at these things on my own and I had an interesting experience in New York City. And Eileen actually brought this idea to the Junior League, but it was not voted. They didn't accept it. So 
it's okay. It kind of came. Anyway, the bottom line is, um, it, 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 we applied the same sort of approach that I had in the court, which is whatever it takes that you would do for your own child. That's what this is about, and for the for the families and for the community to be able to create schools in that way. And so, 20 years later, that's what I've been doing. For, you know, all inspired by what originally was a junior league project. So we have now, we are the national model for schools as community learning centers. So you weren't a member of the league when you first brought pro kids to the, right. I mean, to consideration to the junior right. league. So can you tell me about how you, so when you became a member and... Well, I became a member... Um, because you mentioned there was a different story there, so... Well, when I, um, when I... Um, brought pro kids to the league um, and, and became involved um, as a part of the project, part of the way general meetings were mm -hmm. <laughs> is that every month there was a kind of a snippet about the project. And so every month I was on the docket <laughs> and I stood up on the stage and gave a story about something that some wonderful advocate had done. And so I was really a fixture mm -hmm. around there. And finally, somebody said, you know you should join. <laughs> You're not a member already? What? That's exactly right. They thought I was a member already because I was just there so much. Proof if you hang out at the Columbia Center for long enough, you know. That's exactly what happened. I mean, it was 100%. And actually, to tell you the truth, it wasn't Columbia Center. It was Rockdale. Right, right. It was Rockdale. Columbia Center happened, again, sort of by exactly. jurisdiction. Um, and I was the original VP uh, with Columbia Center with the project, and uh, yeah, so I mean, all of this stuff is very much part of my own personal history. Bottom line was I just kept showing up, and eventually they <laughs> said, would you join? But at the time, um, as you probably know from talking to lots of people, it was a competitive thing, and you had to um, submit an application, you had to be sponsored by somebody who could really write about you. So the woman from the um, Bar Association who had originally connected me was my sponsor. Um, and, um, and I remember, you know, going through the interview process and uh, I was one of the only Jewish members ever. Um, and not that many years after Jews weren't allowed to be members. It's true. And I was not sure how people really <laughs> were going to take that. But I think one of the most amazing things is it was never an issue. And, you know, I became president, and then after me, one of my VPs who was Jewish also became president. And I uh, really, that was just another reason to love the league, is that it just was never, it was never about who you were or how much money you had or, you know, how much money you gave. It was, um, you were really judged on merit. You know, did you work hard? Exactly. <laughs> did you do what you say you were going to do? Did you show up? Did you, did show you do up the work? And do the work and, and do it well. And, and were you a good reflection on the league? And, um, you know, that was that was really something. So I was sure there were people who were kind of turning over in their graves when I was elected president. So can I share with you a saying that I've heard? I'm sure. not sure if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm getting it just right. But I can't tell you how many times I've had these words of yours repeated to me that you learn a lot about women working shoulder to shoulder yeah. with them. That's and I true. think and I think that really <laughs> I think that really captures the essence of the league. Yes. I mean, you form these incredible relationships with women just by, you know, working on these 
projects that Absolutely. I mean that will ultimately so many of them have had such an impact on our community. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you go through fire with them. Absolutely. And and they really do turn out to be the kind of friends that you know, even if you're not going to each other's homes for dinner, um, the depth of those relationships it, there's nothing like it. I mean, you know, you can sort of swap out for, oh, they move away to Florida, but you've only just really had these very kind of surfacey social things. And it was nice, and you may miss them, but somebody mm -hmm. that you've really been through fire with, they're like part of who you are. Um, and, um, and, you know, the, the Children's Museum Committee, um, that we were very involved together in starting the Children's Museum for, for the Museum Center. Um, and there, that we produced a magic show. Um, you know, again, we fought people because the museum community said a children's museum isn't a real museum, and so you shouldn't exist. You shouldn't raise any money. I mean, the kinds of things again. And so those controversies and that battle. So uh, when I see one of these folks, again, this isn't necessarily well known that the league had this involvement. But it's like, oh my God, this is my long lost sister. Like literally, <laughs> do you know? I couldn't imagine, and you hear this over and over again, the people that I met in the league were my best friends, but typically those aren't the people that you just wound up having a drink with at some, you know, mixer. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I think um, it's, it's unique. I mean, I think it's really unique, and I know there are other organizations that do incredibly great work and raise a lot of money. But writing a check is not the same thing as really, and or showing up one time a year is not the same thing as really, you know, sort of turning your life over and putting in the work and putting in. So, what is your favorite junior league moment? Hmm. I know there's probably a lot there, but well, I think the night that it was over, mm -hmm. um, and um, and that final, you know, passing the torch and having the kind of, um, it was a very emotional moment, and it was a very, it was very rewarding to know, again, especially the context of how it began, and other sort of challenges that I thought, and, and the, the warmth of the responses, um, and my dad was there, and my daughter was there, my husband was there, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a very special moment. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, they're just, <laughs> they're, they're, they're never really moments. Do you know? I mean, mm -hmm. what do I value most? Oh my goodness gracious. Every single project I've ever worked on, mm -hmm. you know, every single solitary project and every lesson that I learned. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not really a moment person, do you uh -huh. know, like I would say it, my husband engraved, uh, the, our anniversary date, the date we got married on the back of a locket so that I would always check <laughs> when we actually got married. Um, I have to always remember the year I was born to calculate how old I am. <laughs> I, you know, I don't track it like that. It really mm -hmm. is just, it's, it's anything that you could imagine. If you, you know, that sort of whatever, sep seven degrees of separation or however, with right. the, whatever, I sort of feel like Everything in my life, and frankly, not just be, me, but also my husband. You know, my husband was a mayor of Amberley Village, so it was that was also very, and he was president of a number of different nonprofits, and everything 
I learned, he also learned, and I feel like my daughter also learned, and she went on to become, you know, she was involved with volunteer work and nonprofit work from the time she was a little child. She never knew anything. You know, she was part of it. We were always three of us volunteering for everything. When I first joined the league, I was the vice president of, of trees for the Festival of Trees. Oh, and, I think I might have heard a little bit. Yeah, that was a funny, I mean, that was a, no, that please, was a no. funny moment. Yeah, no, please tell me about um, it. And um, I was very excited about that um, because, again, it was kind of like I was just brand new in the league, maybe a year, and it was one of my first in-league placements, and I worked with this incredible team. Marty Humes was the chair, and I, it was just wonderful. And everybody loves being called to say, you we think you'd be perfect. And so I thought, mm -hmm. oh, okay, you think I'd be perfect. How did you think I would be perfect? <laughs> but okay, I'm, I'm, and so I was going to be the best darn tree person there ever was. And so I solicited trees and sold trees that people would would decorate and donate. But then there were some that they'd say, "Here's the money, you decorate it." <laughs> and so, um, so my husband and I and my daughter <laughs> had a basement full of trees, and we just you know like worked with the donor to say like. Beachmont Optical donated a tree, and they wanted their tree full of eyeglasses, and so we dipped them in sparkles, and <laughs> um, and um, and so I am now a professional tree decorator. Uh, among your other well, resumes. Well, I mean, this is really a very, very, uh, this is a, a sought-after skill, and here's a funny <laughs> story. So my dear, dear, wonderful friend, Francie Martindale, um, who was a vice president on the board with me and one of my best, dearest junior league friends, um, and we're still dear friends to this day, every year at Christmas, before Christmas, for all decades, Chuck and I go to her house, and decorate her Christmas tree. <laughs> and she says they can't do Christmas unless we come over and decorate the tree. So That's amazing. Important <laughs> important life skill. You never know what you're going to learn in the league. Well, it's so true. But I mean, and that's exactly it. You never know what you're going to learn. Exactly. And just the, the, the number of lessons. So it really is... Um, it's just, it's not a moment, it's sort of a lifetime mm -hmm. of moments, and um, and that's that's what the experience has been, you know, small and large, and just mm -hmm. meeting all different kinds of people, and learning all different kinds of things, and being surprised, you know, endlessly surprised. <laughs> you, you never know. Well, Darlene, thank you so much. Well, this has you. been just thank a fantastic you. experience. Thank you so much.